All right. Well, for the next few Sundays that I'm going to be preaching, I want us to take a look at the church. What comprises the church, what the church should look like, what the ministries of the church, the qualities the ministries of the church should have. And we're going to be doing that by looking at Paul's letter that we know as 1 Thessalonians. So if you want to turn there, that'd be great. I am convinced that we need a clear vision, a a clear understanding of what the church is and what it should be. And that goes for all believers everywhere. And that's not just us, but it definitely includes us. We need to um, have a very clear understanding of what God wants His church, what Jesus wants His church to be, what it is. And it can be very easy, even for Christians who have been Christians for many years, uh, even for pastors, to uh, veer off course. And that can happen theologically, where we start to believe something that may not be in line exactly with what Scripture teaches. And then if we keep going in that direction, we usually end up more off course. It can also happen methodologically in the things we do, how we do what we do. And so it is good you know, for us to go to the doctor from time to time to get checkups. Doctors can sometimes see things that we don't see in the questions they ask and the test results they get. And it's good every now and then to just do a bit of a checkup. So... 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 1 through 5. Let's read those verses together, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into what this is saying to us. It says this, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren beloved by God, His choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake." Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for calling us out of our sin and into your family as adopted sons and daughters. We thank you that you have made this church an assembly of people who believe in your name. And we come now to your word and pray that your Holy Spirit will make things clear to us. Show us things we don't see um, in ourselves. Show us the things we need to learn, things that we need to be convicted of, Father, things that we need to change, maybe. I pray, Father, that uh, you will refine us by the power of Jesus Christ and give us full conviction. Amen. Amen. Well, in verse 1... And for the three or four weeks that I'm kind of on this topic, we'll be in First Thessalonians. So I just want to start with the, the, the first verse of the letter, 
tells us who it's from. It's Paul and Silvanus, that's Silas and Timothy. They also send 2 Thessalonians. And this letter begins the, the, the way that letters began back then. Uh, the, the sender's names are mentioned first, and then those to whom it's being sent, and then there's often a greeting. And that's what we see here. Mainly, that it's this is a letter of Paul. He, he is the apostle here, so he is the one who, to, who we associate most with the letter. But Silas and Timothy are right there with them. They are in the trenches with Paul. They are doing the work of the ministry with Paul. And so they are listed here as well. Who is this letter to? It is to the church of the Thessalonians. And I stress that it's written to the church because we we need to think about the meaning of that because these are days before the church was viewed as an institution. Today the church is largely viewed as an institution. These are days before the church was viewed as a building, a a place where you go. And and we need to be clear about that, beloved, because there is an error that is very much ingrained in the way we often think. And it is so ingrained in us that sometimes it's hard to think rightly, or at least talk rightly. Even if we know it in our head, the words just come out wrong sometimes. Because we talk about church as a place that you go. But the church, defined in the New Testament, is not a place to which you go. You did not come to church this morning. Church is not a place you go. It's not a building. Beloved, you did not come to church. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ, you are the church. You are the church. You came to a place. You came to a building this morning. You came to a spot where an assembly of people who trust in Jesus have arranged to meet together. But the church is just is not a building. This is just property. This, the, the, the church is not property in the sense that we think of property. The church is God's property. We are blood-bought slaves of Jesus Christ. We have been bought with a price, and that price is His, his body. But, but a wake church is not a place any more than the church of the Thessalonians was a piece of land. Yeah, they largely met in homes. The church is the people. The church is believers. The church is me. And if you believe in Jesus Christ this morning along with me, the church is you. The church is anyone who has been called out by God. Called out by Jesus Christ. And that, that phrase, called out, is important because that's what the word church in the Greek means. It's a word, ekklesia, ek, out of, and kaleo is a verb that means I call. We are called out. Called out ones. The church is everyone from the day of Pentecost to today and looking forward to a day when I believe Jesus will call us home, what's sometimes called the rapture or the departure. All those in that time frame who have repented of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are the church. The church is all those whom God has called out of their sins and placed into His kingdom 
by the means of faith in Jesus Christ. Who in Ephesians 5.25 we read, gave Himself up for His church. Jesus did not give Himself up for buildings. He gave Himself up for souls. And this morning we are the church. So we, we are in a building where a wake church meets, but this building is not a wake church. When a wake church has a building someday, that building will not be the church either. We need to get out of this mindset. And I know that many of us already understand this, but we still talk. We still use the phrase, I'm going to church. I use that phrase all the time. But it's just not right. We don't go to church. You never go to church. The people are the church. We are the church. Believers in Jesus Christ are the church. And we need to understand that. And we need to know that. And we need to internalize that. Because it means we have to stop thinking about church as a destination and start thinking of the church as what it really is, the body of brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. We also need to understand, while I'm on that though, and I need to say this because many people can get into this mindset, some hear that church is not a place, it's it's people, so that means they don't need to get involved in they don't need to, to be members of, formally, a local church. People, and I think this is a growing trend, it's not really a trend, it's a movement, really, that people don't feel the need to be formally affiliated by membership with a local church. And, and I do believe this is increasing today. Part of the reason that's increasing is because of Things like this, technology that we have. You know, we are broadcasting this morning on Facebook Live. And we are not alone in that. Many churches are broadcasting their services today. But beloved, and I'll say this, if you're watching us, if you're listening to us, or even catching us later, let me be clear about something. I am thrilled that people watch that. I am I'm happy that they watch that, I'd be happier if they were here. Because watching a computer or a tablet or a smartphone is not a substitute for being part of the church. We broadcast so that more people can see us, so that more people can hear us, so that people even in other countries can be exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But never assume, beloved, that you are getting your church fixed in the convenience of your own pajamas on a smartphone. And I know that I'm speaking to the choir, so to speak, here. You're all here, right? But we all can face that temptation. Church membership is to be lived out in the present. Church membership is to be lived out in community. There is nothing in the New Testament that indicates or allows for a disconnected kind of church affiliation. There is nothing in the Bible about Christians who are not actively a part of a committed part of a local assembly of believers. There's just no place in in Acts for that. There's no place in any of the letters for that. And I don't believe that's what Jesus died for. So that we could be loosely... No, He prayed that we would be one. And how can we be one if we're always spread out? We have to come together. That's why 
the Lord's Day meeting of the saints that have been bought by Jesus Christ is so important, beloved. And that's why part of the reason I'm glad each and every one of us is here today. We are called out by God. And, and I do want you to note that called out part. You know, we don't get ourselves into the church. God is the one who in Colossians, it says, He transfers us out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of His beloved Son. While we were enemies, Romans says, Christ died for us. While we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, God made us alive together with Christ. So if you are a member of Jesus' church this morning, understand that your entrance into His body is by His grace. You are a passive participant in one respect because Jesus is the active agent in bringing you forth, calling you forth out of your sins. Like Lazarus, Lazarus was dead when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. But God made him alive and Lazarus came forth. Jesus is the one who, whose power made him alive. And Jesus is the one whose power has made each and every believer alive in this room. And and the Father has adopted you. We didn't choose Him. He chose us. And He called us out to be His body. That means that our identity is not found in what name we choose to name our church. Our identity is not found in, in what we choose for it to be. But our identity must be found in Christ. We are called out by Him. So, so Paul is writing this to those in Thessaloniki whom God has called out of their sins and into His kingdom. This is the called out ones. This is the church of the Thessalonians. True believers. And we know that these were true believers because as we see in 2 Thessalonians, they were enduring persecutions. They were enduring sufferings and afflictions. There was a lot of heat being brought upon that assembly of of believers, presumably by unbelieving Jews. If you go back and look in Acts, there there were unbelieving Jews in in that town who caused a problem for Paul. He actually ended up leaving Thessalonica uh, because so that others could be better off, other believers. Um, So the the Jews were rallying up the town officials about that and so Paul's writing to those who are undergoing the fire. And they are, they, they, are, they are truly in the faith. They were, as verse 1 says, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So their identity is found in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and that speaks not only to the unity between the Father and the Son and how they are on equal footing, but it also speaks to the union that everyone who trusts in Jesus has with Him. We are united to Christ, beloved. You are not, if, if you are a Christian this morning, you do not have to feel that Christ is far off from you because He is not. You are united to Him. We don't just believe things about Jesus. We are in Christ. Paul loves that term, in Christ. We are part of His body. We are united to God Himself through Jesus, who being God and being a man, saves men to bring them to the Father. That happens for every believer. So so we are right now, the Holy Spirit is indwelling us, and we are 
united to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything we are, everything we ever will be, is bound up in Jesus. We read in the New Testament that Christ is our life. We read in Colossians that our lives are hidden with Christ in God. So this morning, beloved, before we even get to the rest of this passage, ask yourself, search your heart, do I identify myself by what I think, or what my family thinks, or what my friends think, or what my boss thinks, or or what the world thinks? Do I identify myself, who I am, by the world's categories, or is my identity in Jesus? There's a world of difference between saying you're a Christian but still identifying yourself the way the world does or saying, I am a child of God. I am united to Christ. I am part of His body. Where do you find peace? Paul says to this church, grace to you and peace. And those are things which really come only from God. We, we can't know peace apart from God and we grace of course comes from God. Grace of course is unmerited favor. It is when God gives us what we don't deserve. God gives us a lot of things we don't deserve actually. God gives us repentance. You know, we think of repentance as something we do, but in 2 Timothy chapter 2 we read that God grants repentance. We read that that God grants Forgiveness. God is the one who has given us the Holy Spirit. The, the, the third person of the Trinity is a gift from the first and second persons of the Trinity. God gives us everlasting life. And oh, by the way, God gives us our daily bread. God takes care of all of those mundane daily needs that we have. And that's all of His grace. Every bit of goodness we ever receive is by His grace. The fact that we are breathing His air is His grace because we are sinners and He would have been well within His rights to just discard us immediately. And the peace we have with God comes as a result of Him saying, you are guilty, but my Son has paid the price in your stead and so I declare you innocent in my sight. I declare you righteous in my sight, because Jesus Christ the righteous, 1 John 2, 1, has borne the penalty in your place. And I'll read another passage that refers to that in just a minute. But Paul wanted those hearing this letter, and they would read these letters publicly. Yeah, Paul tells Timothy to give attention to the public reading of Scripture, and that's part of this. He wanted them to know the grace and peace of God. And we could stop right there this morning and just dwell on the grace and peace of God. How often do you do that, beloved? Just to dwell on the fact that everything you have is by His grace and He has given you peace. He's made peace for you. That brings us to verse 2 and actually verses 2 through 5, which are in the Greek one long sentence. Um... I looked at several English translations. About half of it treat about half of the translations treat them as one sentence, including the one I'm reading from this morning. But uh, either way, it all revolves around one big thought, one main verb. We give thanks. We give thanks. 
And that really is what should sum up the Christian's life. We ought to live lives that revolve around the idea of giving thanks to Jesus Christ for saving us. And the main way we do that is by obeying His commands. And, and we're going to see some of, the, some of the qualities of called out ones who are living lives of thankfulness here. But he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. So Paul's letting them know that he goes to God for them on a consistent basis. The church is to be praying for one another on a consistent basis. We share our prayer requests with one another every week in this assembly. Let me encourage you not just to pray for those requests, but to pray for each other. Okay? Paul was making mention of them in his prayers. He was praying for the people themselves. And so we need to be lifting one another up and not just the verbal requests that we make. And making mention of you is a present tense verb which conveys that this was something he was doing presently and it was something he was continually doing. So it's something that is to be ongoing for Christians. We are to constantly be praying for one another. And in verse 3, we find out what he was praying for them. Look at verse 3 again. Three very familiar things are mentioned. Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ and in the presence of God, our God and Father. So, he prays for them because he's constantly bearing in mind their work of faith. Their work of faith. He is not saying that they have worked for their faith. They, they didn't work for their faith. They didn't work for their salvation. This wasn't a, a faith plus works thing that many live by. The Roman Catholic's doctrine is faith plus work. And I would argue that many Protestants have fallen into a, uh, an error of, of, of works-based salvation without saying it. But th- this was not faith plus works salvation. This was what the Bible is clear about. Salvation in the Bible is holy of the Lord. Salvation is from the Lord, Jonah 2.10. And it is God who makes sinners alive that we've already seen in Ephesians 2. God declares sinners righteous. God sanctifies sinners. God makes people holy. So Paul is not writing about this church that was working for their faith. He thanks God because their faith was working. Their faith's work. The work that resulted from their faith in Jesus Christ. And we know that that is the way to understand this because of things we see elsewhere. Uh, Ephesians 2 verses 8-10 through says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. The grace and the faith are the gift of God not as a result of works, so that man may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So so, so we're created, we are new creations, for the purpose of good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We have been created new creations, we've been saved 
to do the work of faith. What this is saying is that salvation produces the fruit of salvation. If I were to plant an apple tree and take care of it, it would grow and produce apples. Salvation is God has planted you as a new creation to bear the fruit of your salvation. Our works don't produce salvation, but salvation does produce good works. If you've got authentic faith in Jesus Christ, that will necessarily result in faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And of course, not perfectly, because we are all sinners. Not until we see Him face to face, and even then our faith will will be made sight. But, but back to the point, you know, we don't work for our faith, but our faith will show itself in doing the things God has called us to do that are consistent with our faith. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, if, if you are following Him, if you are given over to Him, then your life is going to reflect the new life you've been given by Him and in Him. People are going to be able to see your work of faith. That's what Paul was praying for the Thessalonians. Their faithfulness. That they would be doers of the word and not hearers only, as James puts it. He was praying for their work of faith. Secondly, though, he prays for them because he's bearing in mind their labor of love. Their labor of love. A second mark of those who are called out is their labor of love. We know we are commanded, don't we? We are commanded by Jesus to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves, right? Those are the greatest commandments explicitly stated in Scripture. In fact, love for other brothers and sisters in Christ is is so much a mark of a believer that if someone lacks love for other believers, there is real cause to question whether they know Jesus at all. In 1 John 2, verses 9 and 11, the one who says he is in the light, that's Jesus, and yet hates his brother is not in the light, but is in the darkness until now. The one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going Because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Those are hard words, but they show us how seriously God takes his people loving one another. And that's hard. Loving one another is hard. That's why Paul uses the word labor here. Loving one another is work. The the word in the Greek conveys the idea of wearying, exhausting toil. Blood, sweat, and tears. Love is hard, beloved. Love is hard. The kind of love that this is talking about is hard. It takes work because whether we are walking in the light or are those blinded by the darkness, we have all sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And Scott last week was speaking from Romans 7. We, we, even if we're in Christ, there are so many times we do what we don't want to do and don't do what we want to do. We, we, we still sin. 
And so loving one another, loving sinners is a difficult thing to do. It takes effort, and I want to emphasize that. It takes a spiritual effort to love sinners in a manner reflecting the thankless and sacrificial way Jesus has loved us and and still loves us. You know, I think of... I'm humbled when I truly reflect on the fact that God saved someone like me. You know, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And can it be that I should gain... He died for such a worm as I, as that, that that old hymn says. And not only has God saved this worm, but God wants this worm to love other worms the same way. And this worm is prone to think he's better than other worms. So that makes it that much harder because I've got to, 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 to get over my own sin so that I can love other people who are in their sin. Love is a lot of hard work. And just think about how much Jesus loves us. Jesus doesn't give up on His people and neither should our love give up on other people. We've got to labor to love. And I want to point out how much He loves us from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7-10. through 10. Um, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His Son, His only begotten Son, into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, the wrath absorber for our sins. Yeah, my Bible's falling apart. I just lost lost a map. Um, The point there that I want to make as it relates to, to what we're talking about is that God has loved us with an inexpressibly wonderful kind of love that doesn't give up. And it's a love that we don't initiate to Him, but He has initiated toward us. Not that we loved Him, but He loved us. And so what does that tell us? If we're to, to, to have Christ-like love for other people, that means we've got to love others even when they don't love us back. We've got to love others even when they hate us. Because while we were sinners, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. It takes a labor of love to be faithful as a Christian. And Paul was praying for this church because he knew times would come when it would take hard work to love other brothers and sisters in Christ. Chances are better than average. You've had hard times too. Maybe even now where you find it hard to love someone else who says, I'm a believer too. Lord knows I've had those times. Lord knows I still have those times. But the fact remains, if we have been called out by God, If we are in Christ, if we are saved, 
Your faith, our faith, my faith must work to love. We've got to labor to love as Christ labored to love us. Paul continuously prayed for the church of the Thessalonians for this, and we need to be praying for ourselves for that. I pray that I would be more loving. I pray that you would be more loving. Not to say that you aren't now, but it's a constant struggle to, to love like Christ loves. And love, I'll just point out what I often say. What, it, what is love? Love doesn't do what makes the person happy automatically. Love always does what is the best for the other person. We must love God too. I I need to mention that. We we must love God first. The church is the called out ones. In Romans 8.28, Paul writes that all things work for the good of those who love God and are the called according to His purpose. And And I don't want you to misunderstand that verse. It's a commonly misapplied verse and misunderstood verse. That's not a universal command for everybody. Because who was Paul writing to? He was writing to the church in Rome. The the called out ones in Rome. So so it doesn't work out for good for everybody. This promise is for those who love God. And are the called according to His purpose. The bottom line is that those who are part of the church who, who truly repent... Who, who turn from their sins and entrust themselves to Jesus, they come to Him in humble desperation. Man, I am... Did we go long this morning in, in prepping? Because it's already 12.06. I just, I just looked at my clock. I've still got a third of my notes here. I'm going to try to speed through this, okay? Stay with me. Stay with me, Facebook Live, and be here next week. Just kidding. Well, not really. Um, Third, Paul was constantly bearing in mind their steadfastness of hope. Their steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Let me talk about hope for a minute because hope oftentimes is thought of as, man, I I, I wish this would happen. I, I hope that I get a raise. I hope that I don't play the lottery, but, you know, I hope I win the lottery. No, don't play the lottery. Um, We'll talk about that later uh, if you've you got questions about that. Um, hope is not wishing in the Bible. Hope is not wishing. Hope is future faith. Hope is faith based on a certainty of something that has yet to happen but will. Hope is grounded in the return of Jesus Christ. And, and that really is a theme in First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians. Uh, the hope of Christ's return. Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. And, and he's talking about that in 2 Thessalonians 2 where he's talking about the day of the Lord and the return of Christ. So, Paul wants the Thessalonians to be steadfast in their hope. I'm going to talk more about this in a couple of weeks. But one of the marks of a church 
of an exemplary church is that we are waiting expectantly for Jesus Christ to come back. This week, I, on the internet, on, um, on a website that is supposed to be about how the gospel is central to everything, I saw an article written from a perspective of the end times that I don't agree with, admittedly, but it talked about how we shouldn't think about Jesus Christ and and I'm I don't want to misrepresent the, the main thought, but the gist of it was Christ isn't coming back at any moment. There are a lot of things to work out with with that guy's perspective on the end times and what the Bible teaches, but we're gonna see in, in verse ten that he's gonna tell the Thessalonians to wait for his son from heaven. We are told to say, you know, come Lord Jesus, to be expectant for the return of Christ. And we are to be steadfast in that hope. You know, so, so Paul's got, he's praying for their faith, for their love and their hope. And if those three things sound familiar, he's writing from Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, he says there's faith and hope and love. And the greatest of these is love. But Paul gave thanks to God. He's praying for them, for their their steadfastness of hope. And then, let me just quickly go over verses 4 and 5 here. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. Let me just say a couple things about this. Knowing is a, a verb that carries with it certainty. We don't speculate as Christians. We're not called to speculate. In fact, the letters in the New Testament say don't give in to mere speculations and, and things like that. We are called to know. And, and Paul says, you will be faithful and you will love, and you will be steadfast in your hope when you know that you are beloved by God. And that He has chosen you, His choice of you, through the Gospel. For our Gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And by the way, full conviction doesn't come from you. Your assurance of your salvation doesn't, doesn't come from you. If I was assured of my own salvation by how good I am, I wouldn't be very sure of my salvation. Our, our assurance of our salvation is not bound up in, do I really obey God this much and do I do enough? Now, my assurance of my salvation is bound up in, in, a, in a cross and an empty tomb. And those things are certain. So I know that my salvation is certain. And this is my prayer for us too, that we would be certain. Paul says, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be. He was saying, God set His love on me and God set His love on Silas and Timothy and we proved to be these men among you by the grace of God and now you by the grace of God because of God's choice of you can prove to be these people too. And that's my prayer for us. That we would prove to be these people. 
that we would be those who have a faith in Him that works itself out in faithful living. That we would labor to love one another and others. And that we would be steadfast in our hope. And as we draw to a close, let's just consider, beloved, rather we are working for Christ like this. You know, your obedience is not your assurance of salvation, but your obedience is certainly the fruit of your salvation. Is your faith working? Are you laboring to love other people? I mean, truly laboring. And where's your hope? Is your hope in the 2020 election that we hope we get the president we want? Is your hope in the glory of America and seeing America turn from its wicked ways? Those things are just, it's temporary. It's, our hope is in Christ. Because our identity is in Christ. We are a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of those who, whom He has called out. And if, you're, if, you, if you have doubts about that, come and talk to me. I'll be glad to talk to you. But as we head out these doors today and go back into the world and as our assembly disseminates into the world again, what kind of people are we going to be? Will we let the world define us or will we be identified in Christ and live as called out ones? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the patience of your people. And Lord, I ask that you would conform us to the image of your Son who has called us out to do the work of faith, to labor in our love not only for you but for one another, and to remain steadfast in our our hope, our, our certainty of your son's return. We do, Father, wait expectantly for him. And I pray, Lord, that we, as we wait eagerly for Jesus Christ, that we would live eagerly for Jesus Christ. We ask this in his fine name. Amen.